You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Come now, Holy Spirit, our hearts inspire. And fill us with perpetual fire. Amen. I uh, first personally read the Bible seriously in the year 2000, Y2K, um, after meeting my wife, Holly, uh, who uh, was not my wife then, um, just a girl who I thought was cute and happened to be a Christian. Uh, and I had never really had really great conversations with Christians until uh, Holly. But I was, you know, as young people often are in sort of a spiritual journey and had been for a while. And so I asked her um, uh, some recommendations. I went to Barnes & Noble and saw the, uh, the cash cow for all Christian booksellers, which is all these different iterations of the Bible and was confused about what to choose from. So I asked her for a recommendation and she recommended the NIV Student Bible, which they still sell with the, the ocean motif on the cover. Uh, and uh, I tried to read it cover to cover. I really enjoyed Genesis. Um, it's, a, it's a good story. But when I got to Exodus, um, I was enthralled, absolutely enthralled. Uh, it's possibly the single greatest adventure story uh, ever told. Um, you know, I mean, just think back at all that happens in Exodus. God is speaking through a burning bush, Moses doing battle with Pharaoh, the Pharaoh of Egypt through plagues, uh, God interacting directly with men and a nation, uh, the parting of a sea, the destruction of an army in the same sea, uh, quickly stubborn people of Israel, God uh, proving uh, who he is through miracles of uh, uh, water coming from a rock and bread falling from the sky, uh, battle in the desert, God speaking to Moses on a mountain uh, when there's a uh, uh, great storms and God inscribing his law literally in stone and an idol of cow made uh, an idol of a cow made from gold that is uh, destroyed uh, and uh, I mean so much more happening but these are sort of the highlights and, and and yet the instructions for the building and keeping of the tabernacle were a sign of things to come for me when I struggled through Leviticus numbers and Deuteronomy, with all of its tedium at the time that I didn't understand. I mean, there were some bright spots in those books, but it was enough to, enough to sort of turn me off. I thought, what happened? You know, I mean, Genesis was good, Exodus was fantastic. What's going on here? Fortunately, I eventually read the Gospels and had a, a similar enchantment as I had with Exodus, and there were four versions, so I got to repeat them. But I couldn't put Exodus down. I think I read it in about two days. And I wanted to read it again. You know, for a literary person, uh, which I was, uh, and someone who might be a sort of film buff, uh, Exodus has great elements to it. Uh, an unlikely hero, uh, a protagonist on a journey, a sort of anti-hero, uh, an inhumane supervillain, supernatural help from a guide or guru, in this case, God himself. And finally, deliverance uh, from the problem at hand, the great conflict. And just think about it. Think of Star Wars as basically a riff on something like Exodus uh, and similar classic epics. You have the rebellion, Israel. The empire, Egypt. The Luke Skywalker-esque antihero, Moses. 
Yoda and Obi-Wan, God himself, the force, God's preservation, or we might say, now that we know with the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit. And I could go on. I mean, come on, episode four, A New Hope, right? Uh, that is the Exodus. And here uh, we have the, the setting of the Exodus tonight and what Kelly just read to us. By the way, we'll be preaching from Exodus the next, next couple of months leading up to uh, Christmas. There's too much to tackle during that whole season, but we'll try to hit highlights throughout the entire book. And today uh, we have parts of chapter 1 and 2, which is uh, concerned with setting the stage. You know, if you're thinking of Star Wars still, think of the opening crawl. You know, this is the opening crawl uh, in Exodus. God's uh, chosen uh, has chosen a family in Genesis uh, to bless through Abraham, and he's made a covenant with that family, an agreement, a promise that he will keep. And he's reaffirmed that covenant uh, through Jacob, uh, or, or, or Israel, as he's now known. And Jacob's family is brought into Egypt uh, through Joseph, his son's leadership. And Genesis ends with them numbering just 70 people. And now they grew beyond counting. As we've read here, they've uh, increased greatly. They're a sort of nation within a nation now. The nation of Israel within the nation of of Egypt. And the old benevolent dictator Pharaoh who loved and blessed Joseph and his family is now long dead. We're generations ahead. And there's a new Pharaoh in town and he despises Israel. And not only that, he's scared of Israel, that they might lead an uprising, maybe join a foreign army. And so he engages in slavery and genocide. This is the first Jewish Holocaust. There are more to come, unfortunately. There are three uh, important themes that come out in this opening scene that we just read. The first two are related to Pharaoh, or the uh, nation of, of Egypt. Uh, we hear that he deals shrewdly with Egypt, and that's, that sort of language is repeated over and over again. The, uh, the king of Egypt's shrewd dealings with the nation of Israel, first afflicting them and then eventually killing all the newborn sons, or at least threatening to, of Israel. And then the second thing is that he, he not only deals shrewdly with them, but he enslaves them with taskmasters, preventing their escape and heaping heavy burdens on them through hard work. This is the sort of gulag of ancient Egypt. Uh, and there's another theme, a third theme, that comes out related to Israel in, in this situation. Um, despite all that's happening, they multiply. And multiply because of their fear of God. In spite of all the oppression, God preserves and blesses them. Despite all that's going on and all of uh, Pharaoh's evil schemes, they continue to increase greatly in number. Uh, and honestly, this has been uh, the story uh, uh, with uh, Israel and the Jewish people since. I, I read a quote recently, and I tried to find it. It was in something, um, a book, I think, that I read, and I couldn't find it online. But I remember it saying that Judaism has survived Egypt, Babylon, medieval oppression, and the German Holocaust, but it might not survive modernism and postmodernity. I mean, it's come this far. I mean, older than any other nation. Uh, and it survived all these things. And yet it might not uh, survive. It seems to be decreasing more and more based on the societal milieu that we live in. But that's just a side point to say 
Judea, this isn't the first time Judaism will, uh, it is the first time, it's not the last time that Judaism will experience something like this. Uh, but Moses, who's considered the author also of Exodus, seems to be doing two things. He's emphasizing God keeping the promise that he made to Abraham and providing for his people. And he's also proving Moses' role as an appointed prince and judge of God because God uh, personally has preserved his life. Really, that's the sort of subplot of this uh, scene that we have in Exodus that we're introduced to is the preservation of Moses. Despite all of Pharaoh's best efforts, this one son of Israel is spared because of God's intervention. And it's a story full of satire and irony. Uh, Moses is found by Pharaoh's own daughter, raised by his own mother who is paid to raise her own actual son, and finally uh, brought into Pharaoh's own home. A son of Israel made a prince of Egypt. Basically, he becomes Pharaoh's own grandson. Uh, it's an ironic infiltration into the house of Pharaoh, into the house of bondage. Uh, Moses could only get there by God's providence, by his sovereignty. And it was this very Moses who will bring destruction to that house of bondage. This is like God's sort of Delta Force sneak attack this is, I mean, going back to Star Wars, this is Luke Skywalker going into the Death Star to shoot the, tro- the proton torpedo into the thermal exhaust port. This is God's infiltration into the house of bondage, the sneak attack through this ironic, ironic twist of events with Moses' preservation and new life into the house of, of Pharaoh. And this isn't the only or last or best time God would use this approach of rescue. Did you know there's another man, also born to nobody parents, also born during a king's genocidal campaign on newborn sons, also raised as an infant in Egypt, also chosen as God's prince on earth, also leading the campaign to destroy an archvillain. I'm talking about Jesus Christ. His life, his death, and resurrection are an unexpected infiltration into the domain of darkness a harbinger of destruction for Satan and for the forces of sin, evil, and death. He entered into the household of bondage when nobody was looking and expecting it to happen. And he has set the captives free in yet another exodus. God continues to work this way. But I want to go back and highlight what appears to be a minor sort of subplot detail Uh, in this passage that we have tonight, and that's the women. The women in the story. They're easy to overlook uh, because we can be distracted by what's happening with Pharaoh and what's happening with Moses. But they're the real protagonists in this small scene. The Hebrew midwives, Moses' mother and sister and Pharaoh's daughter, all serve as instruments used by God uh, to preserve Moses. And there are two in particular that are the real heroines of this story. That's the midwives, uh, Shifra and Pua. You know, neither Pharaoh or uh, Moses' parents are named in this passage. We don't even know the actual date. There are a lot of good guesses within about a 200-year period of when this might be happening, but we don't have an actual date because we don't know the name of which Pharaoh it is, which would tell us when this happened. 
I mean, you would think that such an um, important historical figure would be named, but he's not. We're just told he's Pharaoh. But Shifra and Pua, two humble women, are etched eternally into history here by being named. So what's uh, so important about these two women? We're told that they feared God more than they feared man. Actually, they feared God more than the most powerful man alive. And here's the satire. We've had the irony. Remember I mentioned there's also satire here. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. And here's the punchline. The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. I mean, maybe they're lying, but maybe they're telling the truth. But either way... They're, uh, they're preventing uh, what, the, what uh, Pharaoh wants to have happen. It's funny, uh, but these women have a genuine faith. They have what seems to be a genuine heart conversion and love for their true God. And the same can be said about Moses' mother, or, or both of his parents. But we're introduced particularly to his mother as a model of faith. Have you ever read Hebrews before? Do you remember the famous chapter 11, which is called the sort of Hall of Faith, which is a play on words of Hall of Fame? Uh, The Hall of Faith, which lists different people from Israel's history. And not a ton, uh, but uh, enough. And it's interesting that these folks are included here. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Uh, They had faith in God more than uh, the things and people of the world. And this is the uh, major emphasis for our opening passage in Exodus. And it will remain a theme throughout. Uh, And it would be a a point of struggle for, for Israel for the rest of their history, both during and after the Exodus, even after they enter the promised land, and we see it later on when Jesus confronts the religious authorities who fear man more than God. I mean, I can ask similar questions about us today. Who or what are we more likely to fear than God? Who or what has power over us today? Who or what enslaves us Not only that, who or what afflicts us? And again, are we more likely to capitulate to them rather than trust in God? You know, what's true for you? Are you, for example, a slave to your job? Many are stuck in work and unable to leave because uh, they have mortgages to pay and families to provide for, and it can feel like slavery because there seems to be no way out. Maybe there's something like this for you. Maybe it's not that. Maybe it's a a person and a relationship in your life. Maybe there are just societal pressures uh, that rule your life. Maybe your life just seems to have a void, a massive void, uh, that uh, and this aimlessness is oppressive. 
In other words, do you fear man more than you fear God? And how can you get out of the bondage? It requires a promise, just as uh, it did for Shifra and Pua. And it can take preservation, just as it did for Moses. And it may require rescue, just as it did for Israel. I spoke of the uh, parallels between Moses and Jesus Christ earlier. And I want to posit one more parallel uh, that's important for us. Uh, that's important for us in this already but not yet generation. With the knowledge of what Jesus Christ has done. Uh, one more parallel, like the parallel to Jesus to Moses. Just as God intruded upon the household of bondage through Moses, just as God intruded upon the domain of darkness through Jesus Christ, God continues to intrude upon the final frontier of darkness. And that's our hearts, our very hearts. And he does this by sending his Holy Spirit. When Jesus left, he made another promise to send another helper. And this helper would enter our hearts. Our hearts are hardened like Pharaoh's. And they're factory idols like Israel's. Yet the Holy Spirit enters when we least expect and he softens our hardened hearts and helps us to fear God more than to fear man by pointing to Jesus and turning us from idols to the living and true God so that we might live too. And he teaches selfish people to love, both neighbor and enemy. <clears throat> Friends, this life can feel a lot like Egypt in the time of Moses. And we can feel like the people of Israel, enslaved and oppressed. I think it's even more insidious nowadays because our taskmasters and oppressors are subtler. The uh, slave drivers of Egypt were more obvious. You know, they knew who their masters were. Ours might be taken for granted. And actually, worse than that, they might be called good when they're not good at all. But there is hope and there's even an escape hatch. So I say, have faith like Shifra and Pua. And welcome the work of Jesus for your redemption. And beg the Holy Spirit to enter into your life. He may already be there. He might have already infiltrated the enemy territory of your heart. Recognize that if he's there. And be confident that God will preserve you just as he has promised. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.